This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. And we have word of the first promising vaccine to fight COVID-19, with more on the way. And it can't come quickly enough as the United States gets hit with a surge of record-breaking daily cases and increasing deaths. Now, many of the vaccines are different than the way they work. So to help us see what's here, what's over the horizon, we turn to Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, the CEO of Bio, the biotechnology innovation organization that advocates for that industry. She is a medical doctor and molecular immunologist, and it's good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. This first vaccine we're hearing about, that's the one from Pfizer, it is said to be 90% effective. However, according to the press release, which is all we have to go on right now, that's based on seven days of virus exposure. And this virus has been something of a trickster. So forgetting about even the Pfizer vaccine in particular for a moment, when we hear from anybody about any vaccine or treatment, being 90% effective, what exactly does that mean to us? Mm. Well, it means that if you are exposed to the virus, um, nine out of 10 people who are exposed to the virus would be protected um, by the vaccine. And they know this because in this case, in Pfizer's case, because they've inoculated 44,000 people in their trial thus far, and they've received two doses of this vaccine because this is a two-dose vaccine. And since that Um, inoculation. They've been able to see how the vaccinated group has responded and the group that got the placebo. And so the efficacy data is probably pretty sound at this point. And um, we're really looking forward to seeing the rest of the data and and Pfizer filing for their emergency use authorization with the Food and Drug Administration. Yeah, we're all waiting to see that. And the Pfizer vaccine, as you mentioned, like some of the others, requires two shots. More than that, it has to be kept deep frozen until it's ready to use, even more frozen than the proposed Moderna vaccine. We're talking about minus 78 degrees, so it's the temperature of dry ice. In terms of distribution, how much of a problem might that be? Well, let's not kid ourselves. It will be um, a hurdle to surmount. And to that end, Pfizer has been working since they started uh, the research and development project to really also work on their distribution. Um, They have their own distribution channels, unlike many of the other vaccines that are under development right now to fight COVID. And they are confident that using those channels, they'll be able to distribute the vaccine nationally and internationally. But it's going to be very important for us to have more than one option. 
Um, like any clinician, I love to have different options um, to offer patients so I can pick the one that's most appropriate for them. And it is good news that at this point, we still have 191 COVID vaccines in development, 10 of which are in late stage clinical trials. And so we're getting close and we're going to have lots of tools in our toolbox when we get there. Are all those vaccines to do the same thing or some? Because I know early on people were talking to us about we might need different vaccines for people of different ages, ethnicities, even blood types. Do we know how we're dealing with that? Yeah. So the good news is they've they've used several different strategies to develop COVID vaccines. Some of them have used very traditional um, approach of delivering the protein or the building blocks of the virus directly into um, the human body with adjuvant, something that actually um, is a little bit of an irritant to your immune system and helps you mount a larger, um, more robust immune response. It's thought that those adjuvant-based vaccines might be best in the older populations, which tend to uh, produce a more limited immune response in general. Um, then there are those that are using the mRNA approach, of which Pfizer is one, where you're really delivering something that can temporarily manufacture those building blocks of the COVID virus in a human cell. And that has been incredibly powerful and incredibly fast. And then we have the ones that are using um, something like adenovirus, a typical cold virus to help deliver building blocks of the virus. So we have lots of different technologies that are being employed, lots of different approaches. We fully expect to see that some of those approaches might work best in some subpopulations or those with certain exposure patterns or vulnerabilities. And so it's very good that we have all of these different approaches right now. And we're also seeing a lot of diversity in the clinical trials. You know, in the Pfizer clinical trial, they had over 40% people of color as trial participants. Moderna, who's also just completed enrollment of their clinical trials, saw 35% people of color. Um, they're all testing it in a wide range of age groups. So we'll be able to pick apart this data as it comes in and really tell people which would be the best vaccine for them. You know, this whole mRNA technology is is fascinating because one of the things the vaccine developers told me early on is, hey, we've been trying to get an RNA vaccine for a long, long time. If this technology works, we're talking about something that might be a breakthrough, not just for COVID, but for many, many diseases. No, they're absolutely right. This has been the holy grail of vaccine development for some time, and we've been using it um, as we try to develop vaccines to many emerging uh, infections as they've come along. It's just that we've had such um, a focused effort in fighting COVID that this may be the moment in history where we break through and find that this technology has really worked out all the kinks and we know how to get it um, out effectively and safely to, to people who need it. And that could be a paradigm changer for vaccine development in the future. Because let's face it, while COVID has been heartbreaking and it has been a huge challenge um, to try to combat this virus, it's not the first um, emerging infection we've seen just in the last decade, for example, and it won't be the last. And so we're going to need tried and true technologies that we can um, turn around quickly uh, when the next threat emerges. What about people who have gotten the disease? What kind of treatments are out there that they're working on? Because I take it that's a separate matter all together. We're looking here at therapeutics where maybe, I mean, we've been trying things, things that affect interleukin-6, hydroxychloroquine. We've also gotten ourselves into a lot of dead ends. I'll be nice and call them cul-de-sacs, but what are, what are we dealing with with people who already have it? Well, let's start by saying that, you know, 
our hearts go out to all of the families that have been affected by COVID here in the U.S. and around the globe. This has been just a devastating loss of life and a very serious health challenge for so many who have survived it. Um, and we have not just focused on developing preventative measures for COVID. We've also focused a huge effort, and in fact, a larger effort on trying to develop therapeutics. So I mentioned the 191 vaccine programs under development. There are over 600 um, uh, research and development projects globally focused at trying to develop therapeutics for COVID. So we know that this is going to be a very important part of our response. Now, we've seen some early success. And just um, this week, we've seen an emergency use authorization for Lilly's uh, antibody cocktail, which is showing incredibly promising results in cases of mild to moderate COVID that have a confirmatory test and the patients have a high risk of developing severe complications. So a, a narrow indication, but a great glimmer of hope of a therapeutic approach that could be very helpful Regeneron's full EUA is expected shortly as well. So there is a lot coming. Um, and this is going to be very important because, as you say, no matter how effective our vaccine is, um, and we see this with every vaccine, there are going to be people who still get sick. And we still need to bridge the time between now and probably the spring of next year where we have vaccines in wide public distribution. And so therapeutics are a key part. And that's part of the reason that the Biotechnology Innovation Organization sent a letter to Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, pleading with the, the agency to make sure that they put equity of distribution of these COVID therapeutics at the top of their list so that all who need them um, get fair and and, and quick access to therapeutics as they become available. Well, since we've gotten into the administration, let me ask you something that um, I haven't asked anybody on the scientific end. You know, we when we talk about Dr. Anthony Fauci, it's always in terms of politicians talking, and you know, we talk about the, the political battle there. But I'm curious, people in biotech, what do they think about the controversies and the political accusations against Dr. Fauci? Science should be for science sake. It should not be politicized. Science is not a tool of politics. It is a tool of health and progress. And we need to focus on that lens and all work together across party lines to make sure we are speeding the science and then we're getting the science out to everyone who needs it. It's part of the reason why it's so critical and we are so concerned, particularly if you look at the administration of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, which is charged with determining whether or not vaccines and therapeutics are safe and effective and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, which is responsible for determining our distribution schedules and making sure that we get these new tools out to patients and clinicians around the country, because it's not about the politics, it's about the patients. Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath is the CEO of BIO, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization that advocates for that industry. And Dr. McMurray-Heath, I thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. After an election unlike any we've had in ages, we now have a transition to match. Is this something really dangerous or just politics? It's maybe not usual, but still not a problem. David Marchik is director of the Center for Presidential Transition at the Partnership for Public Service. He is, among many other things, a former deputy assistant secretary of state who works with people on both sides of the aisle and has since January hosted the podcast Transition Lab about what transitions are like. 
whether they are for a new president or a second term. Though, David, I don't know how this compares with anything we've ever had before, does it? Uh, Thanks for having me. It's an unusual transition. We've had good transitions. We've had bad transitions. We've never seen anything like this. Um, I would say that this is the most important transition and the most important time to have a smooth transition of power since 1932. In that year, we were in the Great Depression. Uh, Hoover and Roosevelt did not cooperate at all. They didn't like each other. And bad things happened during that four months. So the, the unemployment peaked. We had bank runs in more than 25 states. Hitler came to power. And Hoover's idea of dealing with Roosevelt was to try to convince him to abandon the New Deal. So that was probably the second worst transition. Um, It's critically important that we have a smooth transition this year. Well, before we get to more on that, let's go back to 2000, because that was another disputed election. Some of the same problems, some completely different ones. We were going to have a new president in either case. GSA in that case could not release money to either campaign until mid-December. I remember the Bush transition team renting offices out in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, so they'd be near Dick Cheney, who was running the transition. How smoothly or not smoothly did that go back then when we had a disputed election? Well, the Bush team was was very sophisticated. They tried to do as much as they could. The factual circumstance then and now are completely different. Uh, in that day, we had one state, Florida, with 537 votes determining the outcome of the entire election. Here we have four states where the margin of victory is much higher. You know, Pennsylvania alone is more than 50,000 and President Trump can't win re-election without Pennsylvania. So the factual circumstances is very different. Even President Bush himself on his Sunday congratulatory statement to uh, President-elect Biden said the outcome of this election is clear. So there are two things that are really important. One is getting policies implemented and two is getting people in their seats, officials in their seats. So by at the 100 day mark, when President Bush took office, he had about half as many people as Obama did eight years later in their seats. So it clearly is a cost to getting people in their seats. And eight months after Bush took office, two planes hit the World Trade Center. When the 9-11 Commission did their autopsy on what happened, how we were prepared or not, they said that the transition that was delayed imperiled the ability of President Bush to get officials in their seats. And that cost our readiness. I would think the big worry here would be non-cooperation in national security matters. Leaving a president-elect and his staff out of classified briefings could be dangerous, especially if there is knowledge of plans afoot for something like a 9-11 attack. How much of a problem could this be? Those type of classified briefings, that type of cooperation is absolutely critical. Again, going back to 2000, even during the delayed transition, President Clinton authorized Governor Bush to receive the president's daily brief. That's the most sensitive briefing that a president gets. And he gave Bush access to full uh, intelligence briefings. I thought there was, after 9-11, there was the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act, and that required the president they like to get some form of the president's daily brief, which enables a president-elect to understand what the threats are and the state of big strategic issues so the handoff can go smoothly. There is a requirement in the act that the uh, outgoing provide a homeland security and national security briefing for the president, but they're president-elect, but there are also significant flexibility, significant discretion that, that lies with the Trump administration of how much intelligence, how much they want to share, 
And a lot of that is on hold right now, unfortunately. So when you're planning a transition, a lot of it depends on things that you're going to be facing and creating a transition. We talked about national security, but we've got COVID. We're going through this surge. The Trump administration has apparently decided to follow the advice of Scott Atlas, who wants to let the virus run free, even if that means a million or more people dying, because he thinks that will bring herd immunity and bring the economy back. We know that's not what the Biden team thinks at all. How much of a difference does it make in a transition where you have two sides who just have a zero belief in what the other one is doing or wants to do? This is an absolutely critical question. You, you highlighted the risks to national security. That's important. Right now, the major issue facing the country is COVID. And I'll just give you one example of where collaboration and cooperation is absolutely essential. On Monday of this week, we heard the extremely positive news about the Pfizer vaccine and the efficacy of that vaccine. So the Defense Department and the Health and Human Services Department, along with five or six other departments, Ag, EPA, and others, have been coordinating an effort called Operation Warp Speed. It's to develop and distribute a vaccine to 300 million plus Americans as quickly as possible. That's not a political issue. The American people would want the Biden team to be actively coordinating, cooperating with the Defense Department and HHS today so that this transition awkwardness does not impede the distribution of the vaccine to get it into our arms as quickly as possible. I, you know, my, my brain keeps racing back in, in these disputes that are going on now during this transition to just how meaningful this could be, because it's not just a matter of between administrations. Back in the day when vice presidents were sort of an add-on, you know, Truman is told, they're in the same administration, Truman, as vice president, is told on FDR's death that there's such a thing as an atomic bomb. And it's almost two weeks after that before Secretary of War Henry Stimson gave him any details. And again, Truman had been vice president. So this thing of making sure information gets passed on is glaringly important because at that time, the new president of the United States had to make decisions that were a matter of life and death in terms of invasion versus dropping these bombs of, of an incredible historical importance and had very little time to deal with it. Absolutely. And actually, Truman was so bothered by that, I think that he decided to um, uh, pull the, you know, drop the bomb on Hiroshima 110 days after he took office. That's a monumental decision to basically only learn about three months before. So, when the election of 1952 was occurring, Truman was so bothered by being kept in the dark that he reached out to both Eisenhower and Stevenson, the Republican and Democratic candidates at the point, and said, I'd like for the cabinet to brief you in advance so that whomever wins, you're ready. Stevenson said yes. Eisenhower, for political reasons, said no. And Truman, you know, he had a sharp temper. He wrote what I would call a nasty gram to uh, Eisenhower and basically said, I hope the fools around you don't allow this country to be screwed up, like this screwed up decision you've made. Something along those lines. So, you know, Truman tried to have the first modern, outgoing and incoming collaborative transition. It didn't work perfectly. George Bush, because he had a flawed transition, because eight months later, 9-11 happened, because we had two wars when he was leaving office, and because of the financial crisis, he wanted total collaboration between the outgoing and incoming and that made a positive difference for the country. You recall, Obama was basically running against the Bush record. He was running against McCain, but much of the campaign was a campaign against George Bush. And 
Despite that, George Bush, for the reasons that were good for the country, said, I'm going to put politics aside and roll out the red carpet for Barack Obama. And he did. And it made a positive difference for this country. Final question. You know, one of the things everybody's looking at right now for the incoming Biden administration is who the members of the cabinet are going to be, because they're big names. People are familiar with a lot of the names and all of that. But what's more important? Is it cabinet members? Is it who the chief of staff will be? Or is it getting some of the people already in jobs to stay on and stay what with what they're doing until new people can be picked, trained, and get an idea of what's going on in all these departments. So all of these positions are important, but I think that what we've learned through successful and unsuccessful transitions is that the sequence of that matters. So best practice has been to name the chief of staff as quickly as possible. The chief of staff starts assembling his or her White House team. Pull together the White House team as quickly as possible because they don't require Senate confirmation and because they need to be in their seats January 20th. Then with respect to the cabinet and the, and the sub-cabinet officials, there are 1,250 officials that need to be named by the president that are Senate confirmed. It takes a long time to get them in their place. President Obama had the fastest start of any president. He only had 69 Senate confirmed officials in their seats at the 100-day mark. President Bush had 35 at 100 days. Uh, at about the one-year mark, Bush actually moved ahead and had the most in history, and he had around 521 Senate-confirmed positions. So the White House really goes first. That's best practice, then the cabinet, then the sub-cabinet. Um, and as part of the transition, the Biden team will be evaluating who they want to keep that's part of the existing team. So, you know, in the health area, for example, you know, Francis Collins, he's the head of the NIH. Um, he was an Obama appointee. Trump kept him. I'm sure the, the Biden people are looking, who are the Francis Collins of this administration, this government, that we want to keep for continuity of, of, of government? It is going to be a fascinating story week after week. David Marchick is director of the Center for Presidential Transition at the Partnership for Public Service and finds himself in the middle of it more often than not. David, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. 
An important part of the COVID story is, of course, the economic story, to the point that the disagreements about how to deal with the virus are often even business-related. Some are willing to let many more people die if it gets the economy back because of the destructive nature shutdowns have had on the economy and people's lives. Others say many more deaths and illnesses would shut down the economy anyhow, with hospitals overwhelmed and health care costs skyrocketing. So how is the economy, how is business doing, and what are the fears as we get deeper into this new surge of cases? CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger is back with us. Her podcast, Jill on Money, helps people get through some thorny problems, as does her book, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money. Jill, this is really an interesting situation because we have this big medical story, but it is completely intertwined with the economy. Absolutely. And, you know, if you talk to economists like I do, or even if you just listen to the chair of the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, that's Jerome Powell, they are all linking the two. And you will hear people say things like, the path of the virus will determine the path of the economy. And, And it has really turned out that way. With March and April, the onset of the virus really hitting the nation hard, it resulted in an almost total shutdown of the nation. And what we saw was a shutdown of the economy. As a result, we saw 22 million jobs vanish March and April. And we saw economic output crater, just dropped. And then as things got better and you look at this, uh, the ensuing months, we started crawling out of it. And so to this point through October, I was middle of October at least, what we know is that the U.S. economy has clawed back about two-thirds of all that lost output. The economy as a whole is about 3.5% smaller than it was at the end of last year. So we still have a ways to go. We have recouped about 12 million of the 22 million jobs lost, but that still leaves 10 million jobs that we don't know where they are. We don't know if they're coming back anytime soon. And so what we see in this picture is... As the virus starts to spike right now, there's a big concern because to get us through March and April and basically through the summer, the government stepped in with a lot of support. That was the CARES Act. Maybe it was a check that went out to individuals. It was extended unemployment benefits. It was relief from paying your mortgage or no no evictions allowed. But all those things are set to expire at the end of this year. Some of the benefits already expired. And we're not out of it. So there's a concern among economists that between now, where we are right this minute, and getting to a vaccine that is widely available, and we see millions and millions of Americans get those the vaccine, that there could be a lot more economic damage. And that's the fear as we sit here today. Yeah, and it is such a mixed picture. Unemployment claims were down this past week. But on the other hand, I have a friend who works at a hotel and they just decided with the surge in the virus that they're giving up for now and they're just shutting down. They're just going to have maintenance people there and they're shutting down the restaurant and shutting down the hotel. And also with the CARES Act provision slated to expire at the end of this year, which isn't that far away, All of these things that we had, the extra unemployment benefits, the eviction ban, the mortgage relief forbearance, all of that is about to go away. And I think that there is a real worry that for some reason, 
in a lot of municipalities, they are saying, we don't want to shut down the economy. We don't want to do that. And I understand that. But on some level, human behavior is also going to dictate what happens. Because let's just say you live in uh, middle USA, in some town USA, and there's a spike in cases. Well, people are not going to be spending and going out as freely as they were prior to that time. And without the business, there are companies that are going to be really looking at the, the the eye of the storm to some extent. And I think it's particularly worrisome for small businesses. We had a report out from Goldman Sachs. They have a, um, a part of their company that, that gives money out to small businesses called 10,000 Businesses. And they did a survey. They found that 52% of small business owners were not paying themselves right now. Now, they're able to get unemployment benefits through the, the special uh, benefits through for uh, gig and self-employed people. But as you said, that's going to expire at the end of this year. They also noted 42% of them have already started laying people off because they don't think they'll make it through the first quarter. So what does that tell me? It tells me that the government has got to step in and make some changes. And that means that Congress kind of has to get to work. And they had to do it sooner rather than later because we are going to lose businesses and people are going to really suffer needlessly unless they do. Coming up, we'll talk to CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger about the effect of a vaccine on the economy. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking to CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger, asking her about COVID and the economy. So here's this weird situation. We have this word of a vaccine that may work 90% effective, which is fabulous news, but not enough doses to go around until we probably get into the spring or summer of next year. Before we get to that, We've got this long winter of, of more virus. So if you are a small businessman or you're just trying to figure out your own life and whether your business is going to keep hiring you, is business hopeful, fearful, both at the same time or what? I think small businesses are fearful. I think that larger corporations are really optimistic now. And I think that the surge in the stock market that we saw last week and this week, there's two components to it. One is that the the big fear among investors was that we were going to have an election that didn't that became contested, but for real contested that, you know, it wasn't going to be that the president was saying, oh, I'm challenging results. It was that there really was going to be a razor thin margin and there was going to be no action. And that was one fear. And then the other fear was that you would have a huge sweep among Democrats, where you'd have a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, a Democratic House. And we didn't get either of those outcomes. So last week, election week, that we we actually had the best election week for stocks since 1932. Why? Because we had a Democratic president-elect, and what we have most likely is a Republican Senate, and we have a Democratic House. Now, that divided government means a few things. It means that, number one, there will be very little chance for a Biden administration to raise taxes on corporations. There will be very little chance for a Biden administration to do a sweeping spending plan. And number three, that a Biden administration 
is likely going to take China on, but in a more methodical way without whipsawing corporate America. So that was a huge rally last week. Come to the vaccine rally and you start to see that there is optimism that we are going to get beyond this pandemic and the country will get back on its feet. It does look likely that presuming we get, say, a trillion dollars of stimulus, and I know that's a big presumption, but let's just say that we do, that we should see the U.S. economy recoup that economic output that we lost, get those people back to work, and it's probably all going to happen by the end of next year. So there will probably be, by the time we get through this, changes, though, that may last forever. For instance, we're seeing a lot of companies say, hey, we expect to be back, but a lot of you are working from home and you're telling us that you would rather go back to where you came from in Boise, Idaho and work from there. And we're good with that because that's less financial pressure on you and less financial pressure on us to pay you more. So I, there could be some real changes for sure that we could start to see. Um, I know in, in some organizations, they're starting to hire consultants to say, what would it look like if everybody worked a three-day work week in the office and then the other week a two-day work week? And what would that look like? And, and how would we manage it? And would we have um, this concept of, you know, you just work in any desk? Or would we actually have assigned desks? And, what, and, and how do you plan for that? I think that there's been a lot of dislocation in the commercial real estate market in a lot of cities because it's the unknown. And yet, you know, we have this funny way, we human beings of bouncing back. I remember after the financial crisis, people would say to me like, no one's ever going to invest again. They're never going to do it. They're never going to do it. And you know what? They did it. And so uh, there is a certain amount of, of change that will occur. There will be some industries that really see their fortunes rise. I mean, obviously a company like a Peloton or a Zoom, people are, are adopting that and they will see real gains. But it may not continue forever. There's a whole heck of a lot of people who say, I really want to go to a gym and hang out with my buddies there because it's a lot more fun than sitting in my basement and, uh, you know, cranking out the weights. I got to ask you about this and whether you've heard about this. There is a move started by researchers, I think, at Deutsche Bank originally, and now it's kind of spreading out. A lot of economists are talking about it, that there should be a tax. They're saying like 5% tax on people who will still work at home after the pandemic ends. The idea is... These people are saving money on commuting and eating out and gasoline taxes, but they should contribute to pay the up cost of the infrastructure with that money no longer coming in from gas taxes and highway tolls. And then that tax money could be used to subsidize people with jobs that you can't do from home that are generally lesser paying, you know, stocking the grocery shelves and things like that. I understand the idea intellectually. I don't see, and in part because of what you said about you've got a Democratic president but a Republican Senate, I don't see a political future for it. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily see that. Listen, uh, there are a lot of things here that we should be careful not to read too much into. Um, the idea of taxing various organizations or people during the pandemic doesn't seem particularly wise to me. I also think this argues for more stimulus because what's happening is that states and cities, uh, towns, municipalities, they're all under the gun. They're all trying to figure out how can we bring more money in during this pandemic? Well, if the the federal government is supposed to fill that hole when all else is gone, and that's really where we are. And so part of the stimulus has got to include help for states, help for cities, help for municipalities that are really being beaten down by the virus. 
there are businesses that should bounce back as we control the virus, hopefully through vaccines. There are other businesses, though, that get, you know, kind of mushed up in all of this sometimes in the discussion. But there are businesses like department stores and malls that seem to have been on their way out anyhow. We now have odd situations like the mall owners buying stores like JCPenney out of bankruptcy so they can pay themselves a rent and also keep foot traffic going to the smaller mall stores to keep those places from becoming, you know, empty and haunted. You know, I think uh, I spoke to somebody who's really smart, a marketing professor at NYU named Scott Galloway. Very early in the pandemic, we did a piece for CBS Sunday Morning. And he said something to me that really strikes me as true and has really playing out. And he said, I believe that this virus will be an accelerant to trends that were already taking place. So imagine if you were thinking, hey, department stores are probably not in the greatest shape in the universe uh, a year ago. Well, that's even more so now. In fact, the state of retail has just basically completely accelerated with so much more business going online. And for a while, there was this theory that, you know, well, people don't really feel comfortable buying their groceries online. Well, guess what? They do now. And so I think that the accelerant to the trend that was already in place is absolutely taking hold of retail Certainly in the way that we shop, the way that we spend, I think it's going to be a very interesting holiday season for that matter, because people have now gotten pretty quick to adopt a a type of shopping that maybe they weren't so happy with in the past. So I, I think that some of these businesses are just in transition. And I know that we often will get somewhat nostalgic Um, For that same piece, I interviewed a a woman who had written a history of department stores, and she pointed out to me, you know, you realize, Jill, that, you know, the department stores were the retail killers of a different generation. So it is an evolutionary process. Um, The stores that are doing really smart things and using their online tentacles to serve their their customers are combining curbside pickup are figuring out how to get that last mile delivery done for the cheapest amount of dollars those are the ones that are going to survive and thrive in this next period of time jill schlesinger of course is cbs news business analyst her podcast jill on money will help you with things as will her book the dumb things smart people do with their money jill thank you as always great to be with you CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. TV was changed forever by the death of Alex Trebek, the longtime host of Jeopardy. Jane Pauley of CBS Sunday Morning talked to him soon after he made his diagnosis public. The Trebek era on Jeopardy began in 1984, and he quickly stood out from his game show peers with brain power, poise, and a mustache. I was the first game show host since Groucho Marx to have... Uh, a thick mustache, even though his was mostly uh, makeup. We have hidden somewhere on the board a daily double. He was a success, but it was a success he'd been building all his life. Alex Trebek grew up in Sudbury, Ontario, majored in philosophy at the University of Ottawa. He worked at the CBC and other broadcasting jobs until NBC called in 1973 about a game show job, The Wizard of Odds. And it happened at exactly the moment when I had made a decision that I was going to try my luck here in the United States. And things have worked out rather handsomely. If you're ready, then let us play Jeopardy! You might say that. Trebek has hosted nearly 8,000 episodes of Jeopardy! Alex Trebek! And won six daytime Emmys. Thank you. Thank you. Along the way, he found time for a family. He and his wife, Jean, have two grown children. What I've discovered in all of this is that it's extremely difficult for the caregivers. I've had cards, letters, tweets, whatever, offering prayers. For 35 years, I've enjoyed the success of the show, but I've never really thought about the impact the program was having on American viewers. And I've become part of their lives. This is Jeopardy! And a lot of those viewers are younger than you might expect. What is... <laughs> that is correct. You all accept complete silence. This month, the Harvard Lampoon staged a mock Jeopardy! game in his honor. A tribute to a man who's hosted the show longer than they've been alive. Alex Trebek is a 28-time Emmy nominee. Recipient. 31. Oh. <laughs> I was incorrect. As, as usual, the lampoon is just a little off. <laughs> when you recorded the Jeopardy segments, was that before you had had your diagnosis? Some of it was before, and some of it was after. And so what the challenge for Jeopardy viewers is right now is to figure out is that Alex's real hair, or is that a full hairpiece? This is not the real me. Wow. No. We have the summer months off, so hopefully my own hair will grow back, because I like my own hair. There's a small swing set, so... Uh, this is sweet. This Alex is really Trebek sweet. may uh, not have all the answers, but that doesn't mean he can't still win. All of I'm also astonished at how great you look, and that's what everybody says. You've always got a twinkle, that's your wit, but your eyes also say intelligence, and you have not lost that. Well, thank you for that. Now they'll have to find someone who can take over and not mind being told you're good, but you're no Alex Trebek. You've been listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by District Productive and Paul Whitty Woodhull. I'm Gil Brooks. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.